In the novel, The Wind Knows My Name, Isabel Allende shows us how history repeats itself in a story about two child refugees. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. Isabel Allende is known the world over for her historical novels that square fact and fiction to reveal the truths about society. In her latest novel, The Wind Knows My Name, she brings us again a riveting and immersive story based on real lives and real events. The novel covers decades as we first meet five-year-old Samuel Adler in 1938 in Vienna as the Nazis move in to occupy Austria. His mother makes the painful decision to secure a spot for him on a kinder transport train and send him to England. In 2019, eight decades later, we meet Anita Diaz, a young blind girl who's boarded another train to flee the unspeakable danger in her home country of El Salvador. How does she end up in Arizona? And then how does her circuitous journey, alone and displaced, lead her to the home of a now 86-year-old Samuel Adler living in Berkeley? What does Samuel still have to learn from this other refugee about what he calls his sin of indifference? And what does he learn about holding on to dreams? I talked to author Isabel Allende about her latest novel, The Wind Knows My Name. Tell me about this novel. We begin in 1938 in Austria, and we meet five-year-old Samuel Adler. His father is this very kind doctor who disappears after the pogrom in Vienna, and that was known as Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. And then his loving mother must make the decision to send him away on the kinder transport bound for London. Tell us about this boy. He makes an incredible first impression for us for this novel. I have two protagonists in the novel, Samuel and Anita. And this boy, who is almost six years old, is Samuel Adler. He's a musical prodigy. And his mother has has the horrible choice of uh, uh, either keeping the boy with her, knowing that the Nazis can exterminate her whole family, or send him away uh, to England where she doesn't know who's going to pick up the boy, who's going to take care of him, what's going to happen to him, or if she's ever going to see him again. So the separation is a trauma that the boy will carry all his life. 80 years later, when he's 86 years old, the pandemic hits. He lives in California. He has had a very safe and even life. Um, He works for the symphony. And he, he has made his life very limited in many ways because he doesn't want any risk. He's very traumatized. And then when the pandemic hits, he's sheltering at home with the Salvadorian housekeeper, and they establish a wonderful relationship. And for the first time in his life, he has an opportunity to reflect upon his past and his life and his losses. And he, re- he says at one point in the book, My sin is the sin of indifference. He was so eager to protect himself that he lived without being involved really in the world. But then life gives him an opportunity to atone for the sin of indifference. When a little girl from El Salvador, who has been separated from her mother at the border, 
following the policy of um, zero tolerance and uh, in 2018 and 19 he establishes a relationship with the girl and takes care of her. And then everything changes for him. He, he opens his life, his home, and his heart. It's so profound. I mean, we do follow the character of Samuel from childhood to adulthood. And he, as you say, he's a musician. He has a successful career. And we move into these contemporary times, as you say. What was it about these two characters that captured your attention. The idea of Kristallnacht and what those parents had to go through to send their children away, not really knowing where they were headed, that kind of separation. And then the separations that we see in contemporary times at the border. What were those things that were lining up for you? I mean, there's even the commonality of the train in both of the stories that I found so interesting. What was it that captured your attention? When was that moment when you first started to make those parallels for yourself, uh, even before you started to write this novel? Well, uh, I have a foundation that works um, with women and children, the most vulnerable, high risk, and uh, we have been working with migrants and refugees for a long time internationally and also in the southern border of the United States. And um, when the separation started, of course, my foundation got involved with programs and organizations and people who are working to try to help. And then we heard about the case of a little girl like Anita in the book was separated from her mother and the tragic event that happened, the girl was blind. And um, I don't know, we, we heard about many, many cases, thousands of children. But when you think in big numbers, like thousands of children, doesn't mean much until you, you meet someone, you learn the story, you hear the voice of the person, you see the face, it has a name, she, she in this case has a name. And then everything changes because that child could be your child. You could be in that situation. Be the mother who has to let go of the child or be separated by force from the child. So um, I remembered the, the kinder transport that I knew about because I had seen a play years and years ago. And uh, it stuck with me because I'm a mother. I, uh, that decision, would I send my, my kid in a train to an unknown destiny? to save the child's life is a horrible choice that no parent should ever have to make. And then I remembered other instances in which children have been taken away from their mothers, from their mother's arms. Think of, of slavery, when children were sold and separated from their parents like, like cattle. Think of uh, indigenous children that were taken away from their families to be put in horrible Christian boarding schools to be civilized, supposedly, or, or many other instances in history when this has happened. So it's not a new thing, and it is a terrible tragedy every time. And the thing is about your historical fiction is that it is a fiction based on, for instance, real people like somebody like Anita, or real situations like what's happening at the border and has been happening at the border real situations like the kinder transport. But the thing is that in your fiction, you tell the truest, 
truths. And as you say, you humanize these situations with numberless people involved. And you also humanize the helpers. I was really struck by that reading this novel. It's that immediately we are introduced, for example, to Colonel Volker, who helps the Adlers, as does Peter Steiner. Then the Evans couple helps Samuel. Anita is helped by Selena and Frank and Leticia, and even somehow indirectly, Cruz Torres. What is the story about helpers? I think you're speaking to this idea about your foundation that's named after your daughter. But what is it? This is a story for me about also the helpers, the people who went through these situations and their families. Yes. But it's really a story that underscores the helpers and the advocates. Exactly. <laughs> I, I'm always fascinated by the goodness that we never hear about. We, we look at the news and everything is just horrible. We hear, uh, when we think about the crisis, the humanitarian crisis at the border, it's about the horrible policies, about the, the abuse of the maras and the gangs and the narcos and the police and the soldiers. In, in, and it, it's always about the bad news. You never hear about the thousands and thousands of people who are helping. Uh, there are 40,000 lawyers in the United States that work pro bono to represent the kids in court. And mostly women, because there is no glory, no fame, and no money in this. This is a work of the heart. So mostly women do it. And uh, because my foundation works with those people, I know them. And uh, I am always moved by, by the capacity for goodness that there is in the world. As you mentioned before, Samuel reflects, and as he decides that his severe sin is the one of indifference, this idea of indifference and how it afflicts those, even today, who don't have the presence of mind, who don't reflect to acknowledge what an issue it is when it becomes part of the collective. How is this indifference a much bigger problem for those for, for whom there is no reflection or, or reckoning? I mean, sometimes I think that maybe if people read more, <laughs> that's such an oversimplification, but sometimes I feel like if people read more, their empathy would bloom. A novel like this opens people's eyes to the story of the individual person and erases that indifference. I mean, that's one of the things that this book really represents for me. Yeah, maybe that's the power of fiction, that it, it brings you close to the story of one person. We can connect to that, but we cannot connect to thousands or millions of people. We talk about millions of Ukrainians that have left the country uh, when Russia invaded. That doesn't mean anything until you see them, until you see their faces and learn their names. So the, the, the sin of indifference, this collective sin is understandable because we are overwhelmed with information. Uh, there's just too much to process. We can't do that. But when we get involved one person at a time, it's very different. We talk, for example, about the pro in California, we have the problem of the homeless. 
that doesn't mean much until you you get involved and you know one person or two people and then and then you you can do something often in my foundation my my daughter-in-law runs my foundation lori and often i tell lori look what we do is just a drop of water in a desert of need it doesn't mean anything and she reminds me that it is one person at a time you cannot solve the problem the huge problem but you can help one person at a time and if each one of us could do that just for one person the world would be different and you yourself had to leave your own homeland and live in exile for a time you left chile in 1973 after the coup there and you lived in venezuela and then here in the states now for some maybe is it 40 years i believe a long time yes <laughs> tell me how your own story has informed i know it informs your writing but what were you, were you reflecting on those times when you wrote this particular book well i've been reflecting about that uh, since I, my foundation got involved with refugees i am a very privileged refugee i left my country and i went to venezuela at a time when venezuela was a rich country a democracy open for everybody migrants from all over the world came to venezuela there was work hospitality a, a green generous country and i never had to make a living uh, cleaning bathrooms i i always was able to make to get a job and to find find a community so i was very privileged and then when i came as an immigrant to the united states i didn't come thinking of the american dream i didn't even like this country at all because it had intervened in my country and it was the cia that supported the coup in chile so it, the, my choice was not to come to the united states but i fell in love with an american and i thought okay i'll come and spend a week with him and get him out get him out of my system but that didn't happen <laughs> i i married him and stayed with him for 28 years and in that in that time of course i learned to love this country and to get involved in, in i am very critical of many things but i also try to give back for all that i have received So when I uh, write about refugees I go back to my own experience I can connect with the moment when you leave everything behind and 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 you are running away We're always looking back always thinking that you that you will go back and counting the days to, to go back it's a very different position from the, from the immigrant who looks forward to the future they never look back they don't want to go back the state of mind the state of the soul is very different in both cases well your books have been translated to something like 40 languages and i know firsthand that these are books that touch people intergenerationally so i want to ask you about that what do you make of that i think i know why that occurs why your books are translated and so beloved the world over and can transcend generations too what do you think about that i think that i write about emotions and relationships 
and those are universal. We all want the same things. We all fear the same things. Uh, we, we all connect to other people in the same way. We all want family and community and love and partnership. That's everywhere. So uh, the, maybe when we translate a book, a lot of a lot might be lost. He irony, humor, cultural nuances, but the story carries on because we all feel the same way. You know, I was thinking about how in the book the Anita chapters are told in this first person, where she's talking to Claudia and her Didi doll about this imaginary place, a land on a faraway star, and. We know that we can learn so much from the perspectives of the young. And so the ways that Anita informs us of all of her experiences through these dramatic sort of monologues that she has really informs so much about the larger issues, the larger experiences that a refugee, an asylum seeker must undergo. I was thinking about this idea of displacement for her. And then I thought about the love stories in this book. There are, there's, there are love stories in this book. And this idea of belonging and longing, this very interesting thing that you do with the, an idea of displacement and an idea about love, a romantic love, a parental love, a familial love that belonging to a place and longing, as you were saying before, always looking back when we must leave a place behind. Those are two things that have stayed with me in reading this novel. As you say, there are several love stories in, in the book. Because as I said before, I, I what I write about is about relationships. Samuel is married to a wild character she's she's incredible she's not even faithful and she can't be faithful but he doesn't want to know he uh, he wants his protected life his safe life doesn't want to know what his wife does but adores her and so that is a, a, a very particular relationship and then we have uh, the love of anita for her grandmother for her mother the family that she has left behind but mostly for her sister. We learn very late in the book that the sister that she that, that we think is with her is really dead. She's, she's carrying with her the spirit of her sister. And um, also the imaginary world that she invents, the, the planet where she goes as a Bahar, this is something that kids do. They they and, and I have seen this, they uh, either have an imaginary friend that accompanies them in this traumatic experience, or they go into a, a many of them don't speak for months, sometimes years. They stop talking because they go inside into a place where they can feel safe. And the, the, the trauma is, is so terrible. And I think it's never quite solved no matter how much help they get, the trauma of that separation will stay with them forever. You know, recently 
I met Javier Zamora, the author of Solito, a, a wonderful, wonderful memoir about a nine-year-old kid that comes crosses the border alone, is deported three times before he can make it here and reunite with his parents. And this guy went to Harvard. He's a renowned, published poet and writer. So this is a, a case of, of someone who has made a life here. And he carries this hole in his heart. I had dinner with him and his parents recently. Everybody cried at the table because although this happened so many years ago, they can't even talk about it without crying. The longing is there and the love is there. Well, that reminds me about your story. I have read what you wrote about your very first book, how it started as this letter to your grandfather. And it ended up being not quite a letter, but several hundred pages. 560. <laughs> and you said that it was really about wanting to tell your grandfather that you would not forget all he had shared, his stories, the past. So I'm hearing this also about uh, Javier Zamora, the author of Solito, and this this sort of idea that you are perceiving in him um, and his experiences, but also the way that the writing process for you when you wrote those 560 pages helps in terms of all the ways you have been bereft of so much and deprived of so much. Can you talk about that, about how the writing helps you hold on to your past, even if there remain those ollitos, those holes are still there, those voids that maybe we can never really fill, but the writing and what it has done for you. I, th I think that I can compare that to what has happened to Javier Zamora, who uh, by uh, reliving the experience, he has gone back to the places. His best friend is a, a, a patrol officer who has taken him to all the possible places where he has, where he could have crossed the, the border uh, to recognize, to identify the place, to live again the experience. And in my case, writing The House of the Spirits was a way of, of recovering everything I had lost. My home, my country, my grandfather, my family, my, my life, the life I had before. And in, in writing, I, I sort of <laughs> recorded everything so it wouldn't be lost. Uh, I wrote it so that I wouldn't forget. Many years later, when my daughter died, I write a memoir in which I, I sort of, how can I say it? I, I relived the year of her agony. She was in a coma for a year and her death. And, and in, in, in that, in, in writing, I could see it, I could frame it, I could contain it, and in a way understand it and accept it and live with it. Writing every time has helped me to overcome something or to live with it. Isabel Allende, thank you so much for talking to me today. What an honor and a thrill. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Take care. 
Isabel Allende is the author of the novel, The Wind Knows My Name. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.